Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Hey, we are continuing in our study through the book of Matthew. Obviously, we took last week off that whole empty grave thing. Kind of a big reason to maybe break where I wanted to be preaching and focus on Jesus, but... Uh, What we know is in Matthew, this is our final thoughts, this is the last teaching block of Jesus before what we just celebrated, before he goes to the cross and all of that. This is the last time Matthew records, and he wrote in a very specific way. Here's a little bit of what's going on in his life, then a teaching block, and this is the fifth one out of the book of Matthew. He's talking to his disciples. This is called the Olivet Discourse because he's on the Mount of Olives, and he's talking specifically. uh, His disciples asked three questions. They think they only asked one. Hey, when, when are you showing back up? What's the signs of the end of the age? And when is this all going to happen? They were talking about the destruction of the temple. See, they all thought this was going to culminate at one time. But they really asked three separate questions. And Jesus is answering that. Um, and, and there's still a little bit of a mystery to them. They don't fully understand, obviously, the idea of the church and stuff like that. Baby's crying, do not bother me. So please do not be nothing right. We had a, one little kid over here hiccuping first service. So, now if you're like 37 and you're crying, there's the door, okay? Get out. But, and so the disciples are asking these questions and Jesus is answering. They just, they didn't understand that this wasn't going to culminate in one occasion, but there's multiple things that are going on. And he's, right now, where we're at in Matthew 24, he's specifically talking about this seven-year period we call tribulation. When is the end of the age? It's going to end at this seven-year period of tribulation. And so we, uh, it's going to kick off, it's going to start with the rapture of the church, that we are going to be caught up with Christ, the Antichrist is going to be revealed, and then there's this seven-year period that we read from Daniel chapter 9. And so Jesus is in the middle of that, so Matthew 24, we're starting in verse 29. If you remember 28, there was that very inspiring verse, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures were gather. This makes me feel all warm inside. And immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's the same thing Jesus is going to say here in a few chapters when he's talking to the Pharisees on his trial. He says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and the clouds is a kind of a symbol or an analogy of judgments. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. And from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man." For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. 
and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. If you remember, uh, Noah went into the ark seven days before the rain started. Talk about the longest week of your life. Like, I spent 80 years building this boat, and now there's no rain? After that seven days and the rain started, I'd feel really good. I'd be like, finally, all my work's going to pay off. But people just went on, eating, drinking, doing whatever. Verse 40, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, Jesus was talking, and he was bringing up a situation that's going to happen during the seven-year period. So the, the Antichrist is going to be revealed, and he's going to make a covenant with the Jews, and he's going to allow them to rebuild their temple, and he's going to allow them to restart their sacrificial system. And we know that's true because halfway through at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to bring an end to it. And there's going to be a certain moment where he sets up what Jesus calls is the abomination of desolation. He's going to put his image into the temple, and now he's going to want worship to him. So he's going to bring an end to that Jewish worship in the temple and the sacrifice, and he now wants to be worshiped. And we see that even in Daniel chapter 9, that Daniel prophesies that this is going to happen. And when that does, Jesus tells him in verse 16, flee. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountaintops when you see that. And so what this passage is saying is there's going to be a moment that a Jewish remnant, so all the Jews that are going to be living through the tribulation, there's going to be a remnant that they're going to hear this and they're going to see what is going on. And they're going to know that that is the sign where they need to flee and get out of Jerusalem because Satan is going to move from protecting the Jews working through the Antichrist. Antichrist is going to be protecting the Jews. And then once he sets that up and he breaks that covenant, he's going to turn to attacking the Jews. And Jesus says, when you see that, you need to run, you need to get out. And there's going to be a Jewish remnant. And this is what the term elect is being used in uh, Matthew 24. And this is that watershed event. And that's where, when you see that, flee to the hills. Now, the question is, this is a very literal thing. Uh, if you go back to even to Daniel chapter 9, the same passage that's talking about this prophesies exactly when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. To the day, 400 some years earlier, Daniel writes the prophecy of the day that Jesus was going to ride in to Jerusalem. And then you just kick down a couple of verses and then now we have this, that this abomination of desolation is going to be set up. And so we have real prophecy that was fulfilled literally why would we not have the exact same thing? That this is going to be a moment in human history. And Jesus is saying, you need to flee at this time. And so Jesus continues into the conversation. He says, you're going to see a lot of cosmic different events that are going to happen. The sun's going to be darkened. There's going to be uh, the moon, the stars. They're not going to give their light. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. You kind of have to ask, is there anywhere else in Scripture that coincides, that lines up with these events that are going to happen in the second half of the tribulation. Well, if you read Revelation 8, you will see that. We know that that seven-year period in Revelation talks about three sevens that are going to happen. There's going to be the seven scrolls, then there's going to be seven trumpets, 
And there's going to be seven bowls. And I really don't want to be a part of any of those. And if you read at Revelation 8, you will hear about the trumpets. And you'll hear things about hail and fire mixed with blood. The sea is going to become blood. And then the stars are going to fall. A third of the sun, moon, and stars are going to be darkened. It's verse 12. This is the fourth trumpet in that series. And this is that moment that's describing where now Satan is going to turn and there's going to be attacking of the Jews. And so when Jesus tells them to flee, you're going to see these things happen. You're going to see, like there's going to be cosmic events that you're going to know and see. You need to get out of Dodge. You need to run. Flee for the hills. Now, the question is, is there a specific place that Jesus wants them to go? Or is it just find anywhere, hide and go seek, try to keep from the Antichrist? This is a small geek out, and it's a lot of fun. So if you look at Revelation 12, 6, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness. And in this, the, the analogy, the woman is Israel. So Revelation 12, 6 says, The woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she will be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, some of you math uh, geeks like me, you're taking 1260, divide by 365, and you're getting a weird number. But in a Jewish year, there's only 360 days. And so if you do the math of 1260 divided by 360, you're going to get three and a half. The revelation is telling us that when Israel flees into the wilderness to a prepared place by God, she will be, Israel will be protected and nourished for exactly three and a half years. So where is this place? And the fun thing is, is uh, some people feel like, oh, this is all figurative language. It's not literal, but if we were talking about a figurative thing, why would we use literal numbers? Why wouldn't we need to say for a season or some time? Why are we so specific to the day? And so where are they supposed to flee to? Micah 2.12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, another name for Israel, called by Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, just kind of like what we talked about, and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And so there's going to be this fleeing, and he is going to step in. He's going to assemble them together, this remnant of Israel, almost like a bunch of sheep, in a nice little sheep pen. And he's going to hold them all together. Now what's fun, now here's the geeking out, is like sheep in a fold. That word fold in the original Hebrew is basra, B-A-S-R-A-H. And we know that Basra, B-O-Z-R-A-H, it's a region in southwest Jordan where the ancient city of Petra is located. If you ever get to go over to Israel and do one of those holy land tours in Jerusalem, pay the extra money and go to Petra. It is one of the seven wonders of the world. It is phenomenal. Petra is this ancient fortress city. It wasn't discovered until the 1800s. It's dug out. It's carved out into the side of these cliffs. And the aqueduct system is phenomenal. And during the Byzantine uh, era of Christianity, it was, uh, there was a lot of churches that were there. And, but now it's deserted and it's all just tourism. But you will have to walk through kind of like a valley or a gorge that you can only walk or take a bike maybe. No cars. It's too narrow to make it in there. And then when you get to Petra, all of a sudden it opens up. You can Google pictures. It's phenomenal. And then it'll open up. 
And even uh, as you're like, if you uh, like Wikipedia for whatever they put out there, it even talks about how that is, it's almost like a, a pen or a fold. And this is exactly what God is saying, is that there is going to be this sheepfold, this place in Basra, there's going to be this location that he will protect and nourish Israel for three and a half years. Jeremiah 49, 13 to 14 says, For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her and rise up for battle. So what we know what will happen is at that halfway point of the seven years, Antichrist will turn to attack Israel. That remnant of Israel will go to Petra. And that will be a place to be attacked. And you'll hear this, that an envoy is going to go and attack them. And so gather up for battle like this is going to be a place of war. Isaiah 63. So we're camping out in the Old Testament a little bit. Isaiah 63, 1-3 says, Who is this who comes from Edom? Edom are the descendants of Esau. So Jacob and Esau, this is Edom. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? Who's in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who's in dazzling apparel? Who is marching in a greatness of strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So the Old Testament prophesies that there's going to be one in a dazzling apparel who is mighty to save, who is going to protect the remnant of Israel at Petra. And they're going to see him. They're going to be like, why are you, you know, if you remember the uh, old uh, I Love Lucy episode when she's stomping on the grapes, I know I just totally like called out a generation there, sorry. Uh, some of you young ones, uh, that was black and white TVs before there was color, black and white, it's crazy. But there's that I Love Lucy and she's stomping in the grapes and that's the analogy given. Like if you did that, you'd get covered in wine juice. You would look like you murdered somebody. And so Isaiah is saying there is going to be someone clothed in this crimson garment. And your apparel is red and it's like, it's like you were in a wine press all day long. And you trampled, he says, I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their lifeblood splattered on my garment, stained all my apparel. There's going to be somebody that's going to be bloody from war, not because he was injured, because he was doing the injuring. It's like, where else could we read this? Where else could this be? And this is what I love about Scripture and is how it just pulls together perfectly. So if you go to Revelation 19, we're given a picture of the return of Christ. We're given a picture of who he is, a description of him. And what we have to remember is when we say the second coming of Christ, there's the, the exact literal moment that that happens, but it's also a campaign of different events that are going to happen that start, honestly, even now. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he says, I'm coming back soon. Go and make disciples. Like we're, we're every day is closer to this event. But we know that seven-year period is going to start with the church being caught up with Christ 
seven years of what's called the tribulation and then the second coming. And so there's a campaign, but Revelation 19 talks about that moment, and we're given a picture of Jesus. It says, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule with them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. See, the, the, the army in white and array with them, that's the church. And we're going to look good. We're going to look spotless. Remember, like, uh, if you ever go to a middle school football game, I played middle school football, I know, please, I won't sign any more autographs. <clears throat> my jersey, my uniform, spot clean. There wasn't a grass stain, there wasn't any dirt, there was nothing, because I sat on the bench the whole time. <laughs> Other kids, their uniforms were horrible, they had grass stains and dirt and blood, and there's like turf in their face mask and all that because they were playing. And it's going to be the same way. We are going to be in dazzling white apparel. There's not going to be a drop of blood on us. Why? Because we're not going to be the ones that we're doing any fighting. But then we're going to look to Jesus, and we're all going to be on white horses, and we're going to look to Jesus, and he's going to be covered in blood, but not his own. Like, why are you covered in blood and then taking us on that the official second return of Christ. Like, what's going on? Because for three and a half years, and that later tribulation when Antichrist and, and every whatever of Satan is going to be trying to attack Israel, God's chosen nation, that remnant there at Petra, he alone said he'd tread the winepress. He alone is going to guard Israel. The same Israel that tried to put him on the cross and did. The same Israel that killed him the same Israel that rejected him as their Messiah, he will protect them for that 1,260 days. But why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus protect the very nation that killed him, that rejected him? Because God made an unconditional covenant clear back in Genesis at the very beginning with Abraham. And he said, you are my chosen nation. And that was an unconditional covenant that it has nothing to do with Israel that they could absolutely be this wandering nation like a, an adulterous wife that had nothing to do with their faithfulness. It had to do with the faithfulness of God and what he swore by himself, that he would protect Israel. And I think that's in part what, if you read in Revelation, you get to the 144,000. They're going to be these Jewish evangelists. And I think part of their preaching is going to be talking about when you see this event happen, flee to Petra. That is the place that God has prepared to nourish and protect you. And so this is Jesus. He will be the one, as we say, defender. It's his very nature. And he's going to be defending this remnant of Israel at Petra. And he even defends us now. Because again, when we have turned to him in our faith and our trust, and, and we believe in the sacrifice of what the cross is and his blood that paid for our past present and future sins, and now we have the righteousness of Christ, that defends us. So when people, or uh, I love the, the little Facebook meme that talks about when Satan or anybody else tries to remind us of our past, we just remind him of his future. 
So when people try to bring up our past brokenness or even things that we struggle with now, we point them to the cross and we're defended by the righteousness of Christ because I'm no longer the brokenness and the sin and the wandering, but now I'm a child of God and my identity is in the righteousness of Christ. That's how God sees me. And so even now, he is defending us because that's who he is. And so Jesus continues on, and he talks about, learn the lesson of a fig tree. Like, you get it, right? You walk outside, you see a tree budding, you see some leaves coming out, and you know that the hell of winter is about over. Praise the Lord, right? It's going to get warm. I keep telling my wife, can we please move a little more south? She's like, you can move downstairs. (laughs) It's the closest I'm going to get. No, I want the equator to be my front lawn, Like, I want to burn just checking the mail, and it doesn't take much, right? Nope. But you can understand. You go outside, you see the trees, you see the leaves. Hey, there is hope that it's going to get warmer here. Most of us understand that concept, that spring is arriving, it's going to get warm, and Jesus is saying the same thing, that in this time, that seven years, you'll be able to see things that are going on, and you probably don't have to lurk hard. You probably don't have to look very hard for him. If if a third of the sun, stars, and moon are going to be darkened, that's kind of an easy telltale sign at that moment. If half the sea is going to turn into blood, it might be kind of an easy thing to see and understand. But he goes, there's going to be signs for you to see. For that generation that is going through that seven-year period, you're going to know. And I think Jesus is pointing to that because he said earlier that if those days weren't shortened, all humanity would be lost, that nobody would be able to survive it. So look at those signs and know that, hey, you're, you're getting to the end of it. You're approaching, it's soon approaching, and there's indications that it's not going to be like this forever. Because even in that three and a half period, there's going to be some people going back to, like the days of Noah, just life is normal. But he said, listen, if you're living through that, flee to Petra, look at the signs around, it's coming soon. There, The issue that we have to talk about, though, is for us as the church today, we don't need to look at signs around in the world. We don't need to look at the world and think, oh, look what's happening here and there. Can you believe this state's doing that and this country and whatever, and these are the signs of the times? No. We need to look for a Savior. We're not waiting on any signs to develop, to point us that something's going to happen. All we're waiting on is Christ to catch up his church with him what we call the rapture. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven, not will be in heaven, not we're hoping it's in heaven, not when I die it's in heaven. Our citizenship right now is in heaven. We're, We're just aliens passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, not a sign, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, and I say to you, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, this has tripped up some people. He's not talking about the generation that he's speaking to. Some people use that verse and say, oh, that's why everything had to be done at 70 AD. And that's that preterist view we talked about. He wasn't talking about the generation that he was speaking to. And he's not really talking to this generation. And though he could. What he's talking about is the generation that is living through that seven-year period. They need to know that that generation will not pass away until all of this has taken place. Remember, he cut the days short. And so they can know 
that, hey, once we see these events and these signs happening, it's all going to take place within this generation, within this seven years. And he continues on. He's talking about that later half of the tribulation. He says it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to go back to kind of normal life. We just want to go back to normal. All this craziness that happened. We just, does that not sound kind of recent even here? I just want to go back to normal. I don't want to have to do this or that. We just want to go back to normal. And so the days of Noah are going to be that. People are going to be distracted with the normal everyday things of life. They're going to be given into marriage and marrying, drinking and partying, and just it's going to go back to normal. And just like in the days of Noah, those that did not prepare were caught off guard. Because Noah, again, he didn't walk into the ark when the rain started. If you were outside and the rain started, you were already a week late. That he put Noah and his family in the ark and then closed the door behind them. And then seven days. And so Noah and his family, it's a picture of Israel. And the ark is a picture of Petra. That God put Noah and his family in the ark. And he didn't deliver them from the wrath of God. He delivered them through it. So he puts them in the ark and he pours out his wrath through a worldwide flood. And then here at Petra, he's going to take this remnant of Israel, protect them at Petra, and pour out his wrath on the world. And so this is a, a protection from and through the wrath of God. And you get to this spot where it says, oh, there's two men in a field, one will be taken, one left. Two women at the grinding mill, one taken, one left. And again, some people try to point that to the rapture. Oh, this is, we're just going to be out there working and all of a sudden God's going to take one of us. The problem is when you study that original language, taken away was not a good thing. That taken away was in judgment and condemnation, right? Kind of like when I was in school. We're all learning and doing great and the principal would show up. Nick Pierce, you come to my office. And it never was for like, she finally understood that I'm smarter than the rest of these kids. We need to move him up. Or, no, he's special. Well, I'm special, but not in a good way, right? It was never for anything good. It wasn't like, you know what? You don't need to eat the horrible lunch food. I brought McDonald's for you. Nope. It was never anything good. I was always taken away in judgments and punishment and condemnation. It was nothing ever good. And then I just look at my friends who ratted me out. You've been there. But even that's the mentality here is that those that are taken away is taken away in judgments. Those that are left, you want to be left then. Rapture, you want to be taken. Here, if you're living through the tribulation, you want to be left. And Jesus talked about this already. He's already given us a, a little bit of a pointing to it. So if you go back to Matthew 13, Jesus is doing a lot of these parables, and one of them is the parable of the weeds. And if you remember that, that's where... Uh, there was weeds, and, or some people call them tares and wheat. And if you look at them when they're very early sprouting, they look the exact same. You don't know they are until they're full grown. And so Jesus is talking, read verse 30. Talking about the parable, he says, Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I, tell, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And thankfully, Jesus interprets what this parable really means. And so kick down to verse 39. He says, the harvest is the end of the age. The very question the disciples were asking at the beginning of 24. 
says, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. And the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus is saying here, again, I'll send out, verse 31, send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they're going to gather the wheats, the weeds and the wheat, and he's going to separate them, and he's going to throw them, and there's going to be two men here, one's going to be taken and thrown, and there's going to be two women, one's going to be taken and thrown into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus is like, you don't know when this is going to happen. Even in that seven-year period, you don't know the day or the hour that this is going to happen. And you're going to, there's a lot of people that are just going to go on with the normal distractions of life. Go back to work, I got the kids and soccer practice, and what are we going to have for dinner? And they're going to pay no attention to any of this. He goes, that's why uh, for some of you, it's like a master of a house who had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have let his house broken into, right? That makes sense. If you know when somebody's going to break into your house, you're not going to go to bed. And that beautiful, theologically accurate movie portrays it with that nine-year-old little boy with two thieves that were going to break in because they knew he was home alone. <laughs> and he knew what time. They said, hey, we're going to go get a bite to eat. We'll come back around nine o'clock. So he didn't act stupid and foolish like he didn't know a thief was going to break in. No, he got the paint cans. He got the torch out. He got the BB gun. And he set up and he was ready for them because he knew. He said the return, when Jesus comes rolling in with that white army behind him, they're not going to know the day or the hour. They're going to be like someone in their house sleeping and a thief breaks in. They're not going to know when it is because, again, they're not learning that lesson from the fig tree. And so Noah, that analogy shows us that men are not going to know the day and the thief is the analogy that men are not going to know the hour. Even 2 Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, that they're going to be distracted in their normal everyday lives and they're not going to know when it happens. They're not going to be ready for it. Now, we as the church, we need to be ready too. But we're not trying to prepare ourselves for signs because signs only point to do to bad things. We need to be ready too, not for wrath, not for the wrath of God. We need to be ready for the rapture. That we can't just live in our normal everyday distractions like Jesus isn't coming back for us. And again, that imminent... Uh, Paul lived in a way that he was more focused on the return of Christ to rapture him up than he was his own death. Because that could happen at any moment. There's nothing that we're waiting on. There's no signs. And again, we have to understand that there is that timeline. Because a lot of times we look at the world around us and we ask that question. Remember us talking about the problem of evil. People, we look at the world around us. We see the brokenness. We see the, the evil that's going on. And there's times we feel like we're on the losing side. We're at least the minority, and we feel like we're on the losing side, and we ask ourselves questions like, how long is God going to allow things like this to happen with wars and rumors of wars? How long is he going to allow starvation? And I mean, if you knew the number of kids that died every day just to waterborne illnesses, it's astronomical. It's like, how long is God going to allow this? Why is he allowing this evil to go on? And sometimes people start smearing the character of God through it. But what we have to understand is nobody's going to get by. God's not blinking an eye at any evil. 
that he's a God of justice, and he will repay every wrong that was done, and nobody's going to get away with it. Why doesn't he do it yet? Because he's patiently enduring the evil that is going on in our world, because at the same time, people are coming to a saving relationship with him. And so we as the church, yeah, we need to be ready, but we are patiently enduring the evil that is going on in our world around us. We try to be a voice of hope and of grace and of mercy and of love and of truth, and we're inviting people into that family of God, but we're patiently enduring as well. And we have to understand that God's time is not our time. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But what we do know is we're not destined for this wrath of God. Again, we have to understand who we're at war with. Are we going to have suffering and persecution and pain and grief? Absolutely. Because we are at war with a very real enemy that only wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. So if you thought the Christian life was going to be all happy and clappy and rainbows and unicorn farts, that's not going to be the truth. And a lot of people look at that. It's like, I gave my life to the Lord. Why is my life any better? Well, maybe you're still making stupid decisions. Or maybe God is sending you through a season of pain and suffering because that's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Maybe that the work that God wants to do in you is greater than the thing that you're having to walk through. And sometimes that pain and that suffering, those persecutions are the very thing that God uses to chisel us into his image. That by the testing of your faith, it produces endurance, perseverance, so that you'll be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, James tells us. And so are we, are we at war with a very real enemy? Absolutely. But is the wrath of God for us? Absolutely not. We're not at war with God. We can't be saved by grace through faith and be at war with Him. His wrath is for those that are against Him. We're with Him. And so if you look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and chapters uh, 5, verse 9, chapter 1 says, We wait for His Son, just like we talked about in Philippians, we wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. I love how we always, uh, the pinnacle of our faith is an empty tomb, the resurrection. And He raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That God is absolutely going to pour out His wrath on the world because of all evil, and that's going to bring justice to it. But that's not for us to experience. He doesn't want anybody to experience his wrath. We know in, was it 2 Peter, he says that his desire is that all would come to a saving relationship, that nobody would perish, but that everybody would be saved. We're not destined for this. That's what he goes on to say in chapter 5. For God has not destined us for wrath. This is not his design for, for him to pour out his wrath on the church or even humanity. He wants all to be saved from it. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. There's an invitation with that. There's an invitation with it. That we are not destined for wrath. And he desires all to be saved. And it's not just what are we saved to, you know, from our brokenness, and we're saved to a family of God, and He restores and redeems and reconciles us with Him. But it's also, what, what are we saved from? I'm pouring out my wrath on the earth because I'm not going to allow evil and 
Satan and sin to allow to infect and, af- and affect my good creation anymore. And that's the beautiful part of the cross. Because the whole story of the Bible isn't about how do we live our lives so when we die we go to heaven, try to do more good than bad, and you know if we can make the snuff and a little bit more in the black than the red, we get to go to heaven. It's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is how God is restoring, how he created heaven and earth together. What he didn't create, did not create hell. James 3 would say that we, we light each other on fire with our tongues from hell. But the story of the Bible is how God created the heavens and the earth and how we sinned and brought sin into the world, and we ripped that apart. And the whole story is about how he is restoring that back together. Now, the question is, okay, what happens with evil and sin and all that thing and people that don't want to be uh, destined for this and people that don't want to be uh, re- delivered from it? Here's the invitation. You don't have to be about what God is doing. You have the free will to decide what you want to do with your life and your eternity. And he's a gentleman about it. He will not force you. He will just extend an invitation to be a part of what God's doing. But what he will not allow is for evil and sin to continue to plague his good creation. And he is restoring this back together. And he will absolutely pour out his wrath on the world, on this evil, because he is a God of justice. And so every wrong that we've ever known or encountered, nobody's getting away with it. Nobody's going to be standing in line in heaven and be like, oh, they won't even see me. I'm going to slip right in. No. And the question at the end of the day is, do you know Christ? Have you surrendered and submitted your life to him? Because he wants to save you from this. It is not his heart for any of us to experience his wrath being poured out onto this world. But he will not force you into his presence. He will invite you. And the response is up to you. Will you simply respond to Jesus? His grace, his mercy, his love, his truth, that hand extended to you to say, you're not destined for this. You were created for so much more. You were created to be in community with me. Where there's heaven, there's earth, God's space, our space is now back better than what it was at the garden that we get to be together. But if you don't want any part of that, as C.S. Lewis said, hell is God's monument to human free will, that he will absolutely keep sin and evil from plaguing his good creation. So the invitation is to you. What will you choose? Will you surrender and submit your life to him? And obviously being a part of the the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, there are certain things that he wants to see in us that our lives right now absolutely matter. There are certain expectations my wife had on me at our wedding day. For some reason, she didn't want me going on dates with other girls anymore. I don't know why. Probably the same reason I didn't want her going on dates with other guys that there is absolute certain behaviors because I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife, there are certain things that I do and there are certain things that I do not do. And the same is true, that when we accept that free gift and that invitation to be in a covenant relationship with Jesus, our lives should reflect that, that people should see it in us, that we should be a sign to the world around us. And we'll talk about that next week. I invite you back. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
We trust you. We just thank you for another opportunity to gather together as your body to worship you, to glorify you, to lift your name.